Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 38. Last week, I wrapped up with Tutankhamun and almost finished the 18th dynasty of ancient Egypt, which places us in the New Kingdom. During this time, Egypt controlled parts of Canaan, and this is when the Israelites were either settling in that land or while they were still slaves in Egypt. So, either way, these Egyptian leaders interacted with the cast of characters in the Old Testament. Succeeding Tut was I, who I'll begin this episode with. So let's get started. I was the second to the last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, ruling for only about four years, between 1323 and 1319 BC. But he was not the last of the line descended from Thutmose, that honor went to his predecessor, Tut. Now how does that work? I was older than Tut. In fact, Tut was I's grandnephew and grandson-in-law, which is rather confusing. The easiest explanation is that I is believed to have been Nefertiti's father. So, in reality, the royal family, in an effort to keep the dynasty going, had to dig deep to find a ruler. But he wasn't an outsider to the royal court, having served as an advisor to Tut and the two lesser-known pharaohs before him. As for his origin, he may have been partially Syrian, and this theory is based on him perhaps being the son of Yuya. His father's name was not common in Egypt, and therefore possibly from a different region, the most likely being the Levant. Now, keep in mind, there are layers of theory built on top of other layers, which leads to a higher potential of error. His father was influential in Amenhotep III's royal court, which led to Ai's early interactions with the royal family. And Ai also served Akhenaten, but in a military capacity, having worked his way up to the position of the overseer of all the horses of his majesty which is believed to have been the highest rank within the exclusive charioteering division of the army, as well as the rank just below that of a general. He would also hold the title of God's Father. Now, this title may have meant that he was the father-in-law of the pharaoh. If true, he would also have been the brother-in-law to Amenhotep III, along with the maternal uncle of Akhenaten. He could also have been the father to Nefertiti, but both of these theories are a bit of conjecture, as no documents absolutely attesting to these relationships have been uncovered. At least not yet. And, while Tut ruled, remember he took the throne when he was only nine years old, and ruled for another nine or so years. So the majority of his rule was spent as a child and adolescent. During this time, I served as his Grand Vizier, wielding great power and influence throughout the kingdom. There's also the possibility that he served as the vizier for one or both of Tut's short-lived predecessors. It's believed that I, in this vizier role, directed Tut to discard Akhenaten's religious reforms and re-embrace the traditional polytheism. If you'll remember back to last week, I briefly touched on the now-discarded theory that Tut was assassinated. That theory also proposed that it was I who had Tut murdered, so that he could assume the throne. And, while the current general consensus 
is that Tut either died in an accident or succumbed to one of his many genetic afflictions. What is clear is that he had no heirs and the role of ruler fell to his vizier. Some researchers have suggested that I was also responsible for the deaths of Nefertiti, Sminker, and Tut's two infant children, but there is even less evidence to support this claim. About the only real proof offered for any of these murders, if they were even murders, anyway, the motive for the crime is that I benefited from their deaths, which is true. But however any of these royals passed, someone was going to assume the throne, regardless of if they were responsible for the deaths. And the succession was not what was expected, given that Tut was interred in a smaller-than-expected tomb. There are some that believe that this was Ai's tomb, and given that Ai was probably several decades older than Tut, it wouldn't be abnormal for Ai to have a tomb nearing completion. Ai then, when he died a few years later, could have been entombed in the space that was initially intended for Tut. Both of these tombs were located in the Valley of the Kings, near Thebes. Ai's claim to the throne is generally regarded as a bit suspect. When Tut died, at the age of 18, and with no heirs, there was a power vacuum. At the time, Horemheb was the commander of the army, and also held the title of the Deputy of the Lord of the Two Lands. This title makes it seem like he was the presumed heir. It appears that Horemheb was outflanked to the throne by Ai who legitimized his claim as the next ruler by conducting the funeral rites on the dead Tut, and this role was usually done by the next ruler, being generally regarded as a living deity. I also, possibly, married Anki Cinnamon, Tut's widow. And that's not all. In a stroke of bad luck, it's possible that Horiemeb was out of the country leading the army in Asia when Tut died. Supporting this theory is that Tut's tomb did not appear to have any gifts from Horemeb, but it did include gifts from many other high-ranking officials. It would have been extremely odd for the commander of all the armies not to have sent at least a card, unless he was away, on a business trip. During his short reign, I continued the restoration of polytheism that he had pushed for as Tut's senior advisor. He also constructed a few temples, but nothing really of note, and the detailed history of his rule is largely lost to erasure initiatives conducted by his successor, Harimheb. Erasure that took the form of the destruction of monuments and the desecration of his tomb. So thorough were Harimheb's efforts that the actual length of Ai's reign is unclear. While it's generally reported as four years, it could have been as long as nine. And the reasons for Harimheb's anger at the previous administration is somewhat clear. More on this in a bit. Prior to his death, I chose Nachman to succeed him. Nachman was either his biological or adopted son, at least according to one inscription. And obviously, things didn't go according to the king's plan. How the plan was actually usurped, though, is not clear. Harimheb ended up taking the throne and shortly thereafter removing Ai's name 
from almost every monument, and even repurposed Ai's mortuary temple for his own use. Which gets me to Harimheb, the last ruler of the 18th dynasty, ruling for about 14 years between 1319 and 1292 BC. Harimheb was possibly Ai's son-in-law through marriage to his daughter Mutnejment, but there's no real confirmation that Mutnejment was actually Ai's daughter. Just more speculation. Harimheb, unlike so many of his predecessors, with the possible exception of Ai, was born a commoner. If you'll think back a minute, I mentioned that Ai, through some careful maneuvering, was able to take the throne after Tut. The man he outmaneuvered was probably Harimheb. So Harimheb would have possibly have had a claim to the throne, even if he wasn't Ai's son-in-law. After Ai took the throne, Harimheb maintained his position as the commander of Egypt's armies. So he was well positioned to assume power upon Ai's death. Backing up a bit, I need to cover Harimheb's rise to power. While Tut was the pharaoh, Harimheb was the royal spokesman for Egypt's foreign affairs. In this position, he personally led a diplomatic mission to visit the Nubian governors. Harimheb rose through the ranks to become the commander-in-chief of the army and advisor to the pharaoh. He would gain many titles which were listed on his tomb as hereditary prince and chief commander of the army the attendant of the king in his footsteps in the foreign countries of the south and the north, the king's messenger in front of his army to the foreign countries to the south and the north, and the sole companion, he who is by the feet of his lord on the battlefield on that day of killing Asiatics. And there was another title, the fan-bearer on the right side of the king. And before you discount this role, don't think of him as keeping the king cool with his fan, but more of a trusted advisor who stood at the king's right ear. His tomb also listed him as the rightful heir to Tut, with essentially the title of crown prince. But by the time this was carved, I was well past dead, so it's almost impossible to know if he held this title while Tut was alive, or if this is another bit of revisionism. With Ai's death, Harimheb was not going to be outmaneuvered again. He seized power, probably because he controlled the military, maybe a bloodless sort of coup. And he knew what had to occur next, especially since he was neither the heir apparent nor the previous ruler's designated successor. He needed to legitimize his rule. Harimheb quickly abolished Nakhmen's claim to the throne along with desecrating Ai's tomb. This was done by demolishing his sarcophagus, hammering and chiseling Ai's name from the tomb walls, and possibly even destroying Ai's mummy. Other temples, monuments, and records met the same destructive fate. But for you environmentally conscious out there, do note that many of the monuments were reused, so he wasn't terribly wasteful. He did, though, overlook Tut's tomb. He may have still had a fond place in his heart for the boy Pharaoh, who aided him in his rise to power. Now, if you give credit to Tut and I for restoring polytheism to Egypt, 
then you have to recognize that Harim have pushed this restoration along further. Not all researchers think his immediate two predecessors did nearly as much as he did. Why? Well, after taking power, he also reformed the state, essentially meaning the government, to the point that he began the erasure of the histories of Akhenaten, along with the two relatively unknown pharaohs Sminkur and Neferneferetaten, along with Tut and I. All of this leads Egyptologists to credit him with restabilizing the country after the Armana period. Just after taking the throne, Harim had began wide-ranging internal reforms. This was an attempt to reverse the shift in power from the priest of Amun to the government that Akhenaten had undertaken as part of his religious reforms. To counter this, Harim had essentially reversed what Akhenaten had done by appointing judges and regional tribunes, along with reintroducing local religious authorities. But he was very intentional about who he allowed to wield power of the Amun priesthood, specifically choosing priests who mostly came from the Egyptian army, since he could rely on their personal loyalty. This was most likely designed to prevent the Amun priest from gaining a stranglehold on power. He divided the legal power of Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt into two different divisions, each headed by a separate vizier, one at Thebes and another at Memphis. Harim Heb enacted the ancient Egyptian version of an economic stimulus plan by ramping up the construction of numerous temples and other buildings throughout Egypt. His royal wife was Queen Mutnejmet, who may have been Nefertiti's younger sister but she was not Harimeb's first wife. That title belonged to Amenia, who died before Harimheb assumed the position of Pharaoh. Harimheb is thought to have had no biological heir, not from either wife, which was surely a disappointment to him. A disappointment which was made worse by his second wife's mummy being found with the baby. It's unclear if this baby was stillborn or died shortly after birth. The queen died in her mid-forties, and having been left without an heir, Harimheb would appoint his vizier, Parmesi, as his successor. He may have chosen this specific heir not only because he had been loyal to the pharaoh, but also because he already had both a son and a grandson, ensuring he would not meet the same fate as Harimheb. Haramesi is better known by his royal name, Ramses I, and would become the first ruler of the next dynasty, the 19th. Which, of course, gets me to the next ruler. Ramses, like Harimheb, was born a commoner, but he was born into a well-known military family who hailed from the Nile Delta region, perhaps near the former Hyksos capital of Avaris, which could indicate that his family had contact with the Hyksos. And if you believe the Hyksos are one and the same as the Israelites, then there was plenty of shared familial interactions. His father was a general named Seti. His uncle was Kim Weset, who was also an army officer. His family was very well ingrained with the priesthood of Amun, so he certainly regarded Akhenaten's religious changes as heretical. He was also related to the Viceroy of Cush. 
and this viceroy position reported directly to the pharaoh and governed all of the empire's holdings in northern Nubia. And having all of these relatives in so many high positions demonstrates that while Ramses was born a commoner, he did not have to work his way up from any sort of lower ladder rung. Ramses was appointed by Harimheb to the position of vizier. While in this role, he also served as the high priest of Seth, and this position afforded him the opportunity to be part of the restoration of the traditional polytheistic role of religion in Egyptian society. Ramses would take the throne in 1292 and only rule for about two years, which is, of course, a really short time, except for what was to him the recent history of Egypt. As you would expect, not much is known about his reign, and what is known does not add up to much in terms of accomplishments. But he is credited with the continuation of Harimheb's reforms and the stabilization of the empire, all of this setting the land up for the powerful rulers to come. And as a check, and a reminder, this is when, depending on the exodus date you subscribe to, either the Israelites were settling in Egyptian-controlled Canaan, or still slaves in Egypt proper. Since he was an old man when he was crowned, how old? Well, that we don't know, but the current theory is that he was about 50 years old when he took the throne. So, maybe not terribly old, but old enough to have a grandson. Anyway, since he was an ancient, in an ancient land, one of his first acts was to appoint his son to serve as crown prince and chosen successor. When this son would take the throne, he would be known as Seti I. While serving as crown prince, Seti led several military campaigns, most of these attempts to regain control over some of Egypt's lost territory in Syria. Ramses himself would run internal, meaning domestic affairs, and would concentrate on temple building, including adding to the already massive complex at Karnak. The only thing we certainly know he did was to order endowments for the Nubian temple at Buin, and the construction of a chapel and a temple at Abdaios. The Abdaios project would be finished by his son and successor. In the northern reaches of the empire, he reopened Egyptian turquoise mines in the Sinai, and he led at least one military expedition into Western Asia. And with a short reign, it should be expected that his tomb was small and appears to have been hastily finished. Now, the story of his mummy is almost as interesting as the king himself. The mummy was stolen by the Abdu Raisal family of grave robbers, and it's interesting that these grave robbers chose to make the grave robbing trade a family affair to the point that it has come to represent their familial identity. The mummy was brought to North America sometime around 1860 by Dr. James Douglas, but at the time, no one knew the identity of the mummy, just that it was old and from Egypt. It was placed in the Niagara Museum and Daredevil Hall of Fame in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. The ancient remains remained in the museum for more than 130 years. When the owner of the museum decided to sell his property, Canadian businessman William Jameson purchased the contents of the museum and with the help of Canadian Egyptologist Gail Gibson, identified their great value. But the museum closed in 1999, 
That same year, Jameson sold the Egyptian artifacts in the collection, including the various mummies, to the Michael C. Carlos Museum at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, for two million U.S. dollars. The mummy was returned to Egypt in 2003 with full official honors and is currently on display at the Luxor Museum. The mummy's identity cannot be conclusively determined, but based on CAT scans, X-rays, skull measurements, and radiocarbon dating tests by researchers at Emory University, as well as aesthetic interpretations of a family resemblance, it is most likely that of Ramses I. Also, the mummy's arms were found crossed high across his chest, which is thought to be a position reserved solely for Egyptian royalty, at least until about 600 BC. So that's the story of his mummy. But I'm not quite done with Ramses I. In the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, it was Ramses I who ordered the elimination of the firstborn of every Hebrew slave family in Egypt. This, of course, led to the future prophet Moses being taken in by Bethetha, who in the film is portrayed to be the daughter of Ramses, and therefore the sister of Seti I. In modern archaeology, at least so far, No documents have been uncovered that show Ramses as having made any such order. And since I'm on the subject of modern portrayals, in the 2000 DreamWorks animated film, Joseph, King of Dreams, Ramses I is said to be the Pharaoh who has his dreams interpreted by Joseph and who appoints Joseph to the office of vizier, where he uses his foresight and administrative skills to prevent Egypt from being ruined by famine. And this is completely out of line with essentially all of the historic record. But I think we should know by now that just because a movie is presented in a historical context does not mean it has any historical accuracy. And with that, I'll wrap up this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the journey through the 19th dynasty. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And you can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.